Uh, for some of you newer faces uh, in the room, we've been going through this letter, 2 Timothy, uh, throughout this summer. And today we kind of come in the final turning point of the letter, uh, this the turning point in the series that we've been calling Endure. The whole idea being that this letter is uh, the Apostle Paul writing to, it's his last letter that we have before his death, writing to young Pastor Timothy. He's in the city of Ephesus, and he is afraid, he is anxious, he's overwhelmed and scared at just the, the sheer uhness of it all. Pastoring in a city like this, facing corrupt leaders and church dysfunction, cultural pressures, and just the hard work of ministry. And so Paul's writing for the sake of helping him endure, helping him grow a faith that is lasting, enduring, and constant. You may not be a pastor in the city of Ephesus, but the odds are you want a faith that's constant. You want an experience and a walk with God that isn't prone to the ups and downs of your circumstances, but has this, this abiding peace, consistency in your faith. And that's what this letter is helping us grow in. So you'll see behind me a little bit of an overview of where we've been and where we're going. In the first chapter and a half was Paul's call to endurance. He calls for Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel, but to be strengthened. He calls for him using this imagery of a soldier or an athlete or a farmer. He calls for him to, like in all of those three things, endure as he remembers Jesus. Where we've been for the past two weeks was the uh, middle of the letter where Paul begins to detail some of the obstacles to that enduring faith, identifying the cancerous, empty, false teaching that can come into the church, while also identifying some of the empty faith living that can bloom up and corrupt the church from within. And so today what we're moving to is the final kind of chunk of the letter where we're going to be for the next few weeks as we move into the way of endurance. This is Paul's practical instructions for both Timothy and the church to over, overcome those obstacles and to answer the call of endurance, to walk in a way an enduring faith. It's Paul's practical instructions. And man, am I a big fan of practical instructions, especially when it comes to Ikea. <laughs> You'll see behind me, this is a bully bookcase. I, this thing is my jam. Because here's, here's what happens. Is we go to Ikea and we walk through all the floor models and we see like the bookshelf or the, uh, the cabinet or the table or the, you know, the bench, the chair, what have you. And there in the Ikea store, we're like, oh my gosh, yes, this, it's incredible. I love it. Uh, and so we, we, we write down the like, you know, code, you know, that we've got to write down to then take to the end. And then we pull out these boxes, these like thin, flat pack boxes. We drive home with all the excitement, like, oh, where are we going to put the bench? Where, these new chairs are going to be great. Oh, there's going to be so much storage. And we get home. I, we got a bunk bed for my kids a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago now. And uh, it was incredible bunk bed. Oh, so much room for activities in the room. This is going to be great. And, uh, and so we get home and we start opening up these boxes and it's thousands of screws and bolts and just all of these different lengths and widths of wood. And the excitement from looking at the floor model quickly turns into a panic. I'm just, I'm, I'm looking at stacks of wood sweating because I'm just like, I don't, what am I going to do here? And, I, and the first box that I opened was actually the second, which means it didn't have the flat pack instructions in it. So I start panicking. Like we got the one Ikea box that they forgot to put the instructions in and I, now what am I gonna, I gotta figure this out on my own? Like I'm like Ikea searching, bunk bed, like what do I do on Google? 
And so what happens is that excitement from the floor model turns into the terror at the mess of Tranholt, Crockschult, and Tornviken. <laughs> and what happens then is when I find this and I pull it out from the box, it is an anchor to my soul. It is the balm of Gilead, and it washes certainty over me. In the same week, excuse me, in the same way, today and in the coming weeks, what the Apostle Paul is doing, he's giving practical instructions for constructing an utarda, which is a, uh, a, the Swedish word for endurance. I looked that up and I pronounced it wrong. I'm sure I did. Utarda. He's, he's helping us practically construct an enduring faith, both as individuals and as a community. Because without, if, if the letter just ended where we were last week, we would be left to our own devices, like me with the bunk bed, random pieces smacking them together, hoping something clicks, and then having something that at the end maybe looks right, but having no promises that it's able to hold the weight of, you know, my five-year-old, or, you know, in the case of our faith. We just kind of hope that it holds together, but Paul and the Spirit through him will not leave your and mine, our endurance to chance. And so, here in the back end of the letter, he gives practical instructions so that we, like he, may build an enduring faith. Now, before we stand to read the scriptures, for those of you here that are new today, maybe you don't identify as a Christian, brought along, you're kind of investigating, uh, almost unapologetically, but, but at the same time, Paul's words here are for Christians and for those of us that are seeking to live into that enduring faith. And so my hope for you today is that as we're looking at the instructions, you know, the Billy Bookcase instructions, you know, you're kind of looking over our shoulders at it pondering and questioning what it would look like to build an enduring faith for yourself and what that might look like and even hold for you. And so with that being said, why don't we all stand together as we read from the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. So at the turning point of the letter, Paul now says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. And so, Father, we pray that you would show us the way to walk. Um, God, we want to have a relationship, not just a relationship with you, but a life, God, that, that is one of, um, God, receiving from you and moving out into the world. And, and so often our experiences, our situations, our personality can cause for our faith just be all over the place. The external pressures and persecutions God, what we want is a faith that's enduring, that's lasting, that's constant. And, and it seems Paul here is pointing at some of the ways to find that. And so we pray that, Spirit, you would speak through Paul today, that his words would be your word to us, that we receive them with faith and pray that you'd guide us. Be with us, we pray. Amen. We'll go and be seated. 
And why don't you turn your attention back to the middle of the passage today, verse 12, where right in the middle of the passage, Paul gives us a reminder of why endurance is so important. In verse 12, Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, perse- will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life, the life that you and I were made for, to be truly and fully human, the life of godliness or what Paul is doing here, calling our attention back to the opening pages of the Bible, that you and I are made in the image of God to reflect godliness out into the world. The life living into that will not be easy, Paul says. That you will be persecuted. What he means by this is that there will be social, personal, and spiritual barriers to that goal. That the world, the flesh, and the devil will push back. Paul is saying there is no coasting into godliness. There is no cruise control into the you that you were made to be, but you will have to push against it. There will be obstacles. And so endurance is the name of the game. Coasting, however, Paul warns in the following verse, verse 13, belongs to not those walking in godliness, but to evil people, imposters, those that we talked about the past two weeks. They are the ones who will go on, or, or in the Greek that Paul's writing, and it's, it's kind of alluding to the idea of advancing or sliding into or coasting from bad to worse as they are deceived and are deceiving others. If you want the easy life, the cruise control, coasting life, Paul warns that is not the way of you being what you were made to be. It is not the life of godliness. That is the life that will move from being deceived to deceiving others. That is the life that will move you from bad to worse. You will need to endure if you want to find the life that you were made for. And so in verse 14, right here in the middle, Paul then goes, you must what? Continue, or again, in the writings of what Paul's doing here in the Greek for his language, continue in is the language of remain in, endure in what you have learned. Notice that right here in the middle of the passage, Paul almost kind of redoes the overview of what we've done so far. He's just detailed the obstacle to endurance. There's going to be persecutions. And now he calls towards a call to endure. Continue in what you've learned. In the face of the pressures of the world, the flesh, and the devil, you may feel prone to give in or give up, but Paul says, continue. Paul says, endure. Some of you may feel like that today or in this season, a propensity to want to give in or give up, or just an exhaustion of trying to follow Jesus and being kind of tied into the ups and downs of it all and wondering, how can I find an enduring, constant faith in the middle of this all? How am I able to do this, Paul, we might say, to endure in what I've learned? The surrounding verses then are what Paul's getting at. When we see today where he's gonna be going in the next few weeks is he outlines five practical instructions for constructing a a faith of endurance. Today's just the first two, and then we'll get the, the other ones in the weeks to come. So the first two, let's look at the first one as we look at verse 14. Paul continues saying, not just continue in what you've learned, and have firmly believed. But he says what? What's the basis for continuing and enduring in that? Knowing from whom you learned it. You've heard me talk about this before, but endurance in the Christian faith, perseverance is a team sport. It is a relay race, a baton handoff of watching those coming around the corner on your team and then matching pace with them so that at the right moment they hand off what they've been carrying and you carry it through now for your leg of the race to do the same. 
The Christian faith looks far more like that than an Iron Man triathlon of one guy just killing it the whole time. Paul says, if you want to endure your leg of the race, remember the endurance of those that came before you. Remember what they handed off to you. Remember what was given to you and the way they faithfully entrusted it to you. The first place that Paul calls for Timothy to look is in the following words where he says, how from childhood you have been acquainted. From childhood. If you were with us back in the first week in chapter one, verse five, uh, with Mike Portland from Reality LA teaching, uh, Paul gave us a reminder there, but you know, to bring our attention back to this, of who he's talking about from childhood. This is Timothy's mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois, his mom and grandma, who walked not only in their own faithful journey of walking in service to Jesus, but raised up Timothy to do the same. Timothy had the experience of a childhood of watching grandma and mom around the house, around the dinner table throughout the week, faithfully watching Jesus and instructing him in the sacred writings, as he says. All of this while, as we see in Acts 16, where we get first introduced to Timothy, this is with a father who was not a follower of Jesus. When you look at pictures like of Timothy and his family, there's one I didn't put up there because they're all white and that's not how they looked. And so you're gonna have to let me just explain it to you and picture them as Middle Eastern you know, people because that's what they were. But um, <laughs> it was just like, Timothy's got blonde hair. I'm like, I'm not putting this up. This is, this is factually wrong. Um, so anyway, the, the picture is so fascinating because it's got um, Lois, his grandma, working in the garden. And then right at the foreground of the portrait is uh, Eunice, his mom, and she's got like a little Torah scroll and she's teaching little Timothy. And in the background in their garden is an altar to these Greek gods and there is Timothy's dad making like sacrifices with incense. It's this incredible portrait that you see right into the kind of context that Timothy was being raised in by his mom and grandmother. Instructed in the faith while they're trying to do the hard work of being faithful to Jesus and giving a good example to their, her son and grand, or grandson, all while having to kind of unpack and undo some of the things that Timothy is seeing in dad. This is the kind of portrait that, that what Paul is calling for him to think about. The particularly lonely and hard work of his mom and grandma, the challenging work, the, the need for patience as they work around and correct the false teachings that maybe dad is bringing in from you know, the pagan gods of Rome. And so what's so profound to me, I, I, I literally was like, I started tearing up this week when I, when I put this all together. Here you have Timothy in Ephesus who is lonely himself. He feels isolated without anyone in his corner He's facing the hard work of undoing and reteaching people as there's false teachers in and around the city of Ephesus. And, and here, what you have is Timothy is being called to put his attention on his mom who did very much the same thing, just in a different context. The isolating work, the loneliness of the work, the having to, to deal with lots of questions. Well, what about dad said this? Or what or with as Timothy's dealing with, well, well, these teachers over here are saying that Jesus said this, and and both are requiring this level of patience. And so Timothy here is getting this moment where he's called to an endurance as he remembers his mother's endurance. He's called to a patient work of pastoral ministry as he remembers his mom's pastoral patience with him in the midst of it all. And now Timothy's endurance and faith is being linked up with his mom's. He has been entrusted and given this faith in much the very same way that Timothy is now giving it to others. Timothy's mom's endurance became the source of his. 
that as he looked back at his mom, he's remembering that God was faithful with her. He's going to be faithful with me. If she could endure by the grace of God, then so too can I. So Paul calls for him to put his attention. Remember your mom. Remember the endurance that you saw in her. But more than just calling out his blood family, Paul also calls for him to remember him as his father in the faith, as Timothy being like a son to him. Paul calls for Timothy to remember him. And this is what was happening in verses 10 through 11, those opening verses, where Paul calls for him and says, hey, man, you have, and I'm calling for you to continue following. And then he gives that list of my this and my that. Not to be arrogant or prideful, but to say in many in the same way, what he said to the church in Corinth, follow me as I follow Christ. And he gives these incredible examples of what to follow in. He says, man, follow, continue following in my teaching, what you heard from me publicly in my sermons, privately in the conversations we had. Follow in the example of my conduct. We might say this is his rule of life, that Timothy spent years with Paul watching him, his, his relationship to Sabbath and fasting, these spiritual practices, the way that he carried himself with false teachers, the way he dealt with pastoral issues. He's saying, you saw my conduct. You saw the way that I ordered my life. Follow in that. Follow in my aim in life, pleasing Jesus above all else, my faithfulness to Jesus, my patience of facing the challenges of the ministry and just of life in general with joy, my steadfastness. It's literally the word for endurance. And specifically this endurance amid persecutions and suffering. Paul then lists Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, not because these were the worst moments of persecution in Paul's life, but they were the ones that meant the most to Timothy because they were right around when they first met. Lystra being Timothy's hometown, where Paul was stoned to the point where everybody thought he was dead. They dragged him out of the city. He got back up and walked into the city and started preaching the gospel again. Paul's saying, Timothy, you saw that happen with your, your very own eyes. Follow in this example. Jesus is faithful. The Lord delivered me and he will deliver you too. So Paul proudly is not saying, you know, follow my example. I got it all figured out. He's saying, man, follow my, Jesus has delivered and preserved me. And so follow me and Jesus will do the same for you as well. In these two examples, what we find here is the first instruction for endurance, if you're taking notes, is remembering the saints. Now, for some of you, for most of us, this being a Protestant church, we hear like, you remember the saints and some of you are like breaking out in hives right now and you're like, we're gonna give like candles for Mary away on the way out. So just stick with me for a moment. What I mean by remembering the saints is remembering and receiving the faithfulness of those who have gone before. To go back to the baton race, that as we're running, we are running with the speed and remembering of who has come before, who handed this off to us. For some of you, this is a parent or a family member. It is a grandparent. For some of you, it is a mentor or a friend. There's someone who handed off the faith to you, that their faithfulness endurance was what, what spurred and pushed you on. Even to zoom out from just our own experience, the fact that all of church history for the past 2,000 years has been a handing off from generation to generation, that we have this repertoire, what the author of Hebrews called this great cloud of witnesses as a source for endurance as we remember them. And so for some of this, like I said, this may be your parent, this may be a mentor or a friend. For me, you know, you've got, we've got, uh, Dr. Gary Bashir is coming in a couple weeks. He's, he's one of those, those people that as I spend time with him, as I remember him, there is a source of my own endurance. This may be alive. 
spiritual director, Jim. It's, it's the pastor and author, Eugene Peterson, and Dallas Willard, and Brennan Mann. Like, there's this uh, 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 Julian of Norwich. You have all of these examples, Priscilla and Aquila in the scriptures. These, these stories and people who we look at and we see, that is what endurance looks like. And as we remember them and we see the contours of their life, it becomes a source for our own endurance. And this is very much a practice that Paul is saying here is the basis for continuing in what you've learned. He says, continue in what you've learned. How? Knowing who you got it from. And so this is a practice that Paul seems to think is necessary, remembering those before, remembering the faithful ones before us. And yet it's a practice that's largely been lost. For some of us, it's grounded in a chronological snobbery, what C.S. Lewis referred to as, that anybody that doesn't have an iPhone and, you know, drives and lives in this age as, you know, they were all cavemen. They didn't know what they were talking about. It could be chronological snobbery, the way that we look back on those who came before. For those of us that, that maybe what we received was from our parents, there was so many footnotes I need to put on this, but I think it still is worth saying that some of what keeps us from receiving this is an, an infatuation with parental trauma. Bear with me. What I'm saying here is not that many of us in this room have deep wounds and trauma and abuse that we've suffered through, that we've got to do deep work to come through. What I'm, what I'm speaking of is the more lowercase t trauma, which is the fact that we all have humans as parents. And so we all have things that we need to untangle in, in therapy and journal and pray and work through, right? But there is an infatuation with that in our moment that we refuse to see any of the benefits that we've got from the generation that came before, and so we choose to see, I mean, parents that were doing the best they can, and maybe they didn't, you got a little bit of purity culture put in there. Maybe you got a little bit of like, you know, you couldn't watch Harry Potter for years and years, and you still hold it against them. But to receive that much in the same way that, that here's the thing, once you become a parent, you begin to realize this very much. We're all doing the best we can to be faithful with Jesus in the midst of, oh my goodness, what in the, what's the world coming to? And so while we, yes, absolutely need to do the work of going, man, the faults and the failures and the misgivings of my, my parents... I, I can work through that while still honoring and receiving, while I can still remember what's been given to me. So what I'm saying here is not, you, you had a parent who was abusive, and I'm saying, hey, you need to look, look at the bright side. There's silver lining in there, I'm sure, somewhere. Not at all what I'm saying. For some of you, that is a deep work, and far more of the saints that you're going to be remembering are the people that were the family that you didn't have. But there are for some of us, I think a propensity to view our parents solely through, or our grandparents or whoever it might be, solely through their faults and failures as opposed to holding them as a faithful but imperfect human being. And we can do both of those at the same time. Now, another reason why, and I think this is the biggest one, why we don't remember the saints is a Protestant overreaction. So 500 years ago, we had this big thing called the Protestant Reformation, big deal, and uh, that's why we're here. And um, so what the Protestant Reformation was based on was seeing within the Roman Catholic Church at the time having a bunch of misgivings and just little broken systems within them, one of which being the veneration of the saints, worship, prayer to the saints. The most crass example being, you know, praying to St. Anthony, the patron saint of lost things when you lost your car keys. But now we just have like air tags, um, so we don't. He he's bored now. He doesn't have anything to do. 
And so what happened in the Protestant Reformation among a handful of things, one of them being a good thing to go back and go, no, actually, there's one mediator between God and man, and it's not a bunch, this little pantheon of saints. It's Jesus. We go straight to Jesus, and Jesus is the one who brings us to God. Well, yes and amen. We, we didn't really give ourselves a good remembering of the saints on the other side of it. And so what then has happened is we kind of just have like, it's just me and Jesus. Ah, it's just me and Jesus. As opposed to receiving the heritage of the endurance of the saints. And even more than that, what has happened on the other side of saint worship is we've just replaced it with celebrity worship in the church. I was reading the 20th anniversary of um, re-release of Dallas Willard's Renovation of the Heart. John Mark Comer wrote the foreword. He's a pastor in Portland. And he uh, just wrote this, and it's so good, so I'm just going to quote him. He said this. He said, we've traded saints for celebrities. As a result, we've lost the sense of possibility in our spiritual formation. We have so few luminaries to show us what can actually happen when a woman or man gives their whole self over to God, not as a one-time event, but over the course of a lifetime, dying a thousand small deaths that aggregate into one massive life. They can become radiant. So what's happened here is in the overreaction to the Protestant Reformation and not having some way of receiving the saints and their endurance as a gift, we then look to celebrities. And so what happens then is we bring the expectation and celebration and remembering made for those who've gone before onto like Justin Bieber got baptized. Kanye put out a gospel album. Chance, you know, re referenced Jesus once in this one song. Chris Pratt said something in an award show. We have celebrity Pat... And so what happens is we bring all of that expectation that was made to receive as a gift from those who have gone before, we put it on celebrities, and so we miss, hold on to, one, we put, it's, 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 it's destructive for them because we start putting saintly expectations on them, and most of them are baby Christians, if that, at, that, at this point. And so this is why so many of them then fall away, is because you've got, you know, they're going and talking at churches, like they're not meant to experience that. But similarly, what happens to us then is it rewires, is what John Mark is getting at here, it rewires our expectations for the life of faith. And what we then start classifying as what is a really, what, what it means to be a follower of Jesus is not the grandma or the grandpa at the end of their life living faithfully for Jesus for you know, years and years and years. It's somebody who got up once and said something in an award show. It's somebody who used their platform to say something about Jesus. And the platform and the, the prestige becomes the unifying thing rather than holiness. Are you tracking with me? So I think what we need then is not a, let's go pray to Anthony the next time my keys are lost, but how do we remember the saints as a spiritual practice which then bolsters our endurance, receiving this gift from them? So if Kanye makes an album, that's great, but I'm not basing my expectations of how the church is doing on Kanye. And some of you nod, but like this is totally a thing within the American church, especially the Angelino churches. Everybody who has any level of celebrity that's like, makes some kind of Christian reference, it's like, the, the revival is here. It's like, no, nah, man, that is not our measure for revival, as awesome as Chance the Rapper is. So we need to recapture this. So a couple of really practical ways, because I want to stick with the instructions that Paul's doing here. Practical ways that we can remember the saints. The first is, if they are alive, talk to them. You didn't think you were going to hear a church today, call your mom, but here it is. Maybe this is it. Maybe you've got a family member. Maybe it's a spiritual director. Maybe it's, a, it's, it's a, a mentor or an older friend. It's someone that has in their rear view mirror ages of, of faithfulness to Jesus. 
And if they're still alive, talk to them, ask questions, figure out what makes them tick. Go back to Paul's language, figure out their teaching, their conduct, their aim in life, their faith, their patience, their love, their steadfastness. What persecutions and sufferings have they gone through? And you just shut up and listen and just just saturate yourself in their life and go, God, make me like them. That's, I think, is the best definition of a saint. Someone who can say, follow me as I follow Christ. And we say, I want to. If, if maybe they've passed, and maybe they're, they're, they're someone that you've never met, but are someone that their endurance means something for you, read their biographies. This is in the, um, on our uh, collectivechurch.com slash current series. Our recommended resources for this series, I've got no like Bible study books. It's a bunch of biographies from faithful saints. Go grab one. The, uh, the main one that I would recommend for some of you, and don't, it's big, so don't have to read it all at once, but it's uh, Water from a Deep Well by Gerald Sitzer, and he goes through church history looking at little examples of faithfulness of different people in different generations of the church. And just see if anybody sticks out to you and then go, oh, her, Julian of Norwich. I want to know everything about Julian of Norwich. She sounds incredible. Oh, I want to know everything about Augustine. I want to know everything about Melito of Sardis, right? you just reading through those stories to begin to bring those things up. Read their biographies. Uh, St. Uh, Barsanufius, how's that for a name? He is an Orthodox uh, monk who, man, this quote is so good. He says, learn to war with your passions. This is very important and even imperative. So he's talking about an enduring faith, which comes through the, uh, what Jesus says, dying to ourself. And he says, the best guide for you will be the lives of the saints. The world abandoned this reading long ago, but don't conform to the world, and this reading will console you greatly. In the lives of the saints, you'll find instructions on how to conduct warfare against the spirit of evil and remain the victor. Or we might say, in the lives of the saint, you'll find instructions on how to endure. So we receive, we read these biographies. And so, man, find that, read those things. You want a recommendation? You're in a season of life, you're like, man, I want, some, I want a patron saint for this season of life. Come talk to me. Let's, let's find someone together that's worth following. The third uh, practical way of, of being able to just remember the saints is, and this is your little craft. Here's your craft and arts and crafts uh, assignment for you if you want to do this one, is to create in your, in your house, somewhere in your house, a little wall of endurance. Print out pictures or quotes from certain people that mean something for your endurance and put them somewhere in your house. And this is not, you know, you're praying to them. Again, we're moving away from that. We're talking about remembering them. So that when you see them, you just have this reminder as you move out into your day or as you're in the house with your kids, it remem- you're just bringing those, those moments, those people to mind about their endurance. So this may be family members or mentors or quotes from certain people. But you just have a little, little thing somewhere in your house where when you walk by it, you see it and it's just... Like if the, it's the same thing that Paul's trying to do with uh, Timothy and his mom. If they can be faithful, so can I. If God was with them, I know he's with me. And the fourth one is using their birthdays as an opportunity just to celebrate and remember them. You could put this in your calendar, like just look up, you know, different people's birthdays. And when you see them, have that just be, a, you bring that to mind and you spend the day kind of remembering things that you've read or if there's someone that you know, stories and things that they've said and told you over the years. If you want to be able to develop this more, the Lectio 365, L-E-C-T-I-O app is an incredible little like morning prayer app. We do it myself. It's just me and my little coffee. Um, 
And then we also have a kid's version that's also very, very good. But one of the things they do is they normally use scripture, but on particular birthdays of different like faithful people, they'll spend the day with like a quote from them or talk about their story. And so yesterday was Susanna Wesley, the mother of Methodism, John and Charles Wesley, hymnist and the revivalist, telling her story. I just love the little example they give is, she had a husband who was jailed because he was a pastor that mismanaged money. And so she's trying to raise 10 kids uh, while she's also trying to raise them in the way of Jesus. And so one of the things that she did was whenever she needed prayer, she would take her apron and just put it over her head, like in the house. And I was like, man, that's what I, I told Aaron. I was like, I need, a, I need an apron. Like I need like in, in that, there's just something in the house where I can just like put that over. That one's for free for some of you in here. So all this is to say that there are these incredible, we have 2,000 years. And if we include the people of God before, we have thousands of years of, of faithfulness to God, stories of God being faithful to people and people enduring in the midst of, of it all that we're able to pull from. And, and our individualism and our celebrity worship, man, we impoverished in this way. And I actually was thinking about this as we were, they were doing sound check today. One of the other ways you can remember the saints is by singing their songs. There is a deep value in singing songs that have been sung over the generations. Like that's part of what we do the doxology every week for. Like some of the new stuff that we sing is so good, but there is something so beneficial to my soul when I'm singing a hymn that I know comes from generations of people faithfully singing it and wasn't written last week in a blue bottle in Echo Park. Like as good as that stuff is. Amen, are you guys with me, no? All right, cool, all right. Well, I guess we'll lean into that. Um, so as good as that stuff is, there is something when, man, like, you sing Martin Luther's, you know, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and the lyrics are weird because it's like, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, A Bulwark Never Failing. When was the last time you said bulwark? But as you read through that, you're like, man, this hymn guided the Protestant Reformation. has been sung by Christians for the past 500 years, and when I'm singing, I'm stepping into this heritage and not just like something that I received last week. So that one's off the notes, but... Some of you guys like that stuff. All right, so let me just say, as you go to practice this this week in your discipleship groups, discuss with one another, who are some of the saints in your story? Who are those who have handed down faithfully to you? What did you learn from them? Who has faithfully gone before you? Whether that is you know, 500 years ago or, or it's your grandma, what example and portrait have they given you that you can receive? And so this is the first way that we can endure by remembering the saints. But what we find as we continue is that the gifts of the saints is not just in who they were, but what they handed down, which is where Paul moves next as he looks at the second of two practical instructions for constructing an enduring faith. What does he say? Let's reread verse 15. He says, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with what? The sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says the second way of endurance is not just in remembering the saints, but in receiving the scriptures, the sacred writings, the Bible. The second instruction, Paul says, is you, you want to endure, receive the scriptures, receive the scriptures. Now, the quick note is receiving this is much easier said than done. And so that's why we're going to do a little bit of a, a teaser and fly through the next couple of verses here because our next series after we wrap up 2 Timothy is going to be eight weeks on shifting our paradigm for how we read scripture. Most deconstruction stories apart from church hurt and, and maybe church abuse to just like, I want to sin and so I'm just going to like call it deconstruction. Um, that was a joke. Or maybe it was a little bit too much of a joke. Um, 
when, when we have one of those two, one of the predominant ones that I think can actually be avoided is actually through um, deconstruction that happens because we have a, a broken paradigm for how we read scripture. And so it brings us questions about science or questions about anti-women or anti-shrimp and how does the law work over here and how do we read that? Like we have all this stuff. It's kosher people, you guys know what I'm talking about. There's like, no, no, why no bacon? Like, what do we do here? Most of the deconstruction stuff that, I, that's, that genuinely can be avoided, I think, most often comes from a, a faulty paradigm of Scripture, one that we bring that actually isn't the one that the Bible itself gives us. And so we're going to take eight weeks on shifting the paradigm. Um, we're going to have a, the, the, the plan is a couple of classes and even a book club to go along with this of like rewiring a paradigm for reading Scripture that's actually the one the Bible gives us. And so we're going to return to this text, actually, uh, multiple times in that series. So today, let's briefly fly over some of this as a bit of a teaser. First, Paul says to receive the scriptures, he says what? To receive all of the scriptures. Paul says all of this book, or better said, this, li- this book that is a library of books, is to be received as the way of endurance, That is the first half of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, the New Testament or the writings of the Apostle of Jesus. All of this is to be received. Now, some of us say all. Well, one, how do we know that what we have in here is the all that Paul's talking about? And second, you say all. Have you read Leviticus? Have you read Ezra? All of it? We're going to be coming back to that as part of the series. But for now, yes, all of it. The second thing that Paul moves to of receiving the scriptures is not just their, the scope of all of scripture, but the source being that the scriptures are God-breathed, or you might have it translated in your Bible, inspired. That is, that this text, why we stand for the reading of God's word is, yes, this was absolutely a pastoral letter written from the Apostle Paul in jail somewhere around 63, 64 AD as, as he's writing to a pastor. It's like, it's, it's a superhuman book. And yet we believe this is the God's inspiration is working in this, that this is God's word to us. It is both a divine and a human book. We're going to spend an entire week on just this in that series. What does it mean that we say the scriptures are inspired? But what we're saying is that the narrative, law, poetry, letters, everything in here is 100% written by humans while at 100% being the word of God. And that is a mystery that's at the very heart of what it means to be human. To be of God and yet of human. This is exactly what it's all about. But in the meantime, this book serves as God speaking to us, guiding us, making us wise for salvation. For those of us that are followers of Jesus, this is our chief authority in faith and practice is receiving from this word. And so finally, as we receive all the scriptures as God breathed, we find the prophet, what the scriptures do in our lives. They, Paul says, teach us. They reproof, that is, they challenge us. They call out things, the way that we live or the way that we believe. But they don't just rebuke and challenge us and leave us there. They correct us. They restore us. They exhort and encourage us. They train us in godliness, which is exactly what we were talking about back at the beginning. All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And and so how do we endure in the midst of it? This book will train us in order to endure in the midst of it all. The end goal of the scriptures doing their work of teaching, exhorting, rebuking, correcting, and training is all so that the man, or it's simply the word for human here, the person of God may be complete. That they may be mature. 
The end goal of the scriptures is to help you grow up in the faith. And what does maturity in the faith look like? Equipped for every good work. The end goal of an enduring faith, the end goal of the scripture's work in you is a life of self-giving love for others. The end goal of receiving the scriptures is not Bible knowledge. It is not the Greek and the Hebrew and the geeking. It's not you being able to debate somebody. It's you being shaped into the sort of person who is equipped for any work, any good work, any act of self-giving love as it comes before you, which you could argue is, is what we're talking about when we talk about godliness. And so, like I said, we're going to spend eight weeks on this, but for today, what, what, what are some baseline kind of practices for receiving the scriptures, for receiving the sacred writings? Well, the first is just to note that most of us, the way that we relate to this book is a lot more like an iTunes terms and conditions page than anything else. We don't really have to do that as much anymore, but back in the day, like every, like when I was in high school, every week you get like a new iTunes update and then they'd be like, here's the new terms and conditions. And what would we all do? Scroll, 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 accept, right? And like, you have no idea. It's like, you know, you know, we're going to come and take your, you know, left arm. You're like, all right, cool. Like, I just, I just want to stream music. Most of us genuinely in the church, we, we operate with the scriptures like the terms and conditions. We scroll through the baseline of kind of what's the baseline that I need to, to basically get into the app and be able to use it, the you know, Christian church thing. Or we're really content with like a mediator who gets up every single week and just tells us what to think as opposed to spending time within the scriptures for ourselves. And so the goal in receiving the scriptures is for you to receive the scriptures, and so we're going to detail this more in the next series, but for today as a reminder, here is our three-part uh, Bible engagement at Collective. This is how we do Bible. This is how we receive the scriptures. Three parts. The first is being personal study or meditation on the scripture. During the week on our website or on our Instagram, you can find the text that's going to be for the week. And so on Monday or Tuesday this past week, 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17 was up on the website for you to read and to study. Then we gather for the weekly sermon or the talk, which we could call proclamation. Paul's actually going to spend a whole chunk next week dealing with how, how vital preaching is in the work of an enduring church. And then as we come and gather, then during the week, we gather in our discipleship groups to discuss application. This is how we do receiving the scriptures at Collective. And I can tell you, if you're missing one of these or two of these, then there's going to be a breakdown in your experience of how we do discipleship and how we grow at Collective Church. And so for those of you that are here, I just want to invite you, if you're new to Collective and you're beginning to step in and you're like, okay, what's some of the next steps? Maybe neighborhood dinner, discipleship group. This is the lifeblood of our church, of where discipleship truly does happen. And so again, that QR code or come grab me or April and, and we'd be happy to help you begin to figure out or find what that might look like for you. And so I want to invite you into doing that. Now, at the same time, for those of you that are already in discipleship groups, or maybe you were, and then this thing called the summer slump happened, uh, the summer slump is absolutely real, no shame, no fault. But I would say, as we begin to kind of move back through the summer to find those ways to re-engage with this rhythm in your discipleship group if you're a part of one. And again, to recapture that with this three-part model. If you are only doing two of these, which is what I found to be true with most of us, is we do number two and number three. We do the, the Sunday gathering and our discipleship group, but no personal study for ourselves and meditation on the scriptures. Um, what ends up happening is your discipleship group feels like sermon discussion. I'm not that interesting. It's, it, that's why it's not working. I'm not that cool. 
or very regularly it becomes therapy, which therapy is awesome. That's not what a discipleship group is. Or it just becomes a hangout, which again, I love that. You can invite me anytime, but that is not what a discipleship group is. What it's meant to be is the final capstone and movement and launching and application of what we've spent a week meditating on and hearing proclaimed in our midst. And so call you back to this as a practice, or if you're new, to jump into this for the first time. When all three of these are happening, this is how we receive the scriptures at our church. And so maybe your discipleship group is a mess right now, or you're like, I want to read the Bible, and every single week I load up the page, and I'm like, bleh, and now I've given up. Come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Isaac or any of the other regional ministry leads, and we would love to be able to help you think through that. Or even if it's your discipleship group, give some kind of coaching, helpful tidbits and input on helping that get going. So there's your practice for receiving the scriptures. Make a plan. Whether that's once a week you're going to sit down and read it or my wife Erin is like an overachiever and so she reads the, the text like every single day, every morning. That's like her devotion. She's like, it's like built-in devotions. I just read the same text every single day. Whatever that is, getting some rhythm of receiving from the scriptures, studying it for yourself, gathering for the proclamation of the word on Sunday, and then gathering in discipleship groups for the application. This is how we receive the scriptures here at Collective. It's not perfect. There's a lot of cool ways that you can do it at a lot of different churches, but this is how we do it here. And so that's what we're calling you into. So as we begin to wrap up, the first two ways of endurance out of the five that we're gonna find in the coming weeks, the first two ways of endurance is to first remember the saints and to receive the scriptures. Paul's first two instructions for constructing an enduring life or enduring faith mirrors words that if you've been a part of Collective this year, you've heard me coming back to this again and again and again. Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, you see the remembering the saints language, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, we could argue this happens through receiving the scriptures. Receiving Jesus and looking to him as the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As Paul said in our passage today, it is through faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved, and it is through faith in Jesus Christ that we endure in our salvation. Today, Paul, being a really good pastor, in giving practical examples, rather than saying, hey, Timothy, you want to know how to endure in your faith for Jesus? Jesus. Like, you've been a part of these Sunday schools where we just use Jesus as the answer for everything, and that's great, because most often he is. Paul's being a really good pastor here in giving practical handholds for how to look to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith so we can endure. And he says, you can do this by remembering the saints and receiving the scriptures. And as you do this, you will find in both of them stories of God's inspiration, stories that are God-breathed, stories that are the mysterious overlap of God and humanity, whether that is opening up to 2 Timothy or that is the story of you know, your grandmother or the story of some saint, some mentor long before. In both of these, we find the mysterious overlap of a God-breathed, inspired story. And these stories, as we meditate on them, as we look to them, they make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And as you and I take on these practices of remembering the saints and receiving the scriptures, that is how God breathes his 
spirit into us, where we find God breathing wisdom and endurance and salvation and endurance is by receiving and remembering these two things. And so the invitation for us today is to look to Jesus and to look to Jesus in these two places where he's made himself available. Let's pray.